my name is Tom Ricks. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree, uh, and we're thankful to be able to worship together this morning. Uh, our call to worship is from uh, Isaiah chapter 40, and the call to worship begins with a couple of questions, uh, and it uses those questions to, to cause us to pause and to reflect on our God and who He is and the role that He plays in our lives. Uh, so I would love to just ask us all, uh, myself included, to pause and to consider these questions as we begin to enter into worship. And not only the questions, uh, but the answer that the prophet Isaiah gives us. Isaiah chapter 40, our call to worship begins in verse 26. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. The creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up. With wings like eagles, they shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. For all of us this morning who in some way are weary or faint-hearted or lacking in strength, our God does not call us to worship Him in our strength. He calls us to come and to rest in Him and in His power and in His might. Let's do that together this morning as we worship. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you that we can answer these questions, that we uh, are here this morning because we want to be reminded, we want to know, uh, we want to count ourselves among those who have heard uh, of your power and your strength and your grace and your mercy. Not so that we can boast in knowing you, but so that we can rest in your strength. Father, we, we are a people who grow weary, who grow faint, who lack understanding. And so, Lord, as we come to worship you, as we come to give ourselves to you again, may we do so remembering that you are the mighty one who saves and that we can rest in you and find our strength in you even as we worship you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship together. Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that guides my heart. Lord, I
still before you. Thank you for your mercy and your forgiveness in our lives, Lord. We are so grateful. I pray now that we would be able to be still before you and hear what you have for us today. It's in Christ's precious and holy name I pray. Amen. Good morning, Green Tree. Tammy Higgins here. A lot of the people in our church right now are learning about Corinthians in the Bible. And I thought it would be great if you guys could learn about it too. Corinth was a city that had a lot of different kinds of people in it. All these people were doing all different kinds of things. Some of the things were fine, no big deal, but a lot of the things were pretty bad. There was so much sin and people really only cared about themselves and making their own self great. They didn't care about others. It was really selfish. So God told Paul, whose only job was to tell the world about Jesus and his good news, he sent Paul to Corinth 
to tell them all about the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And guess what? A lot of the people there believed and they started to follow Jesus and his way. That didn't mean they still didn't make mistakes. They still struggled with sin. But when Paul was there for a whole year teaching them, they were doing okay. But then Paul had to go. And then things got really out of hand. How many of you are in school wearing a mask right now? You get to go to class. How many of you stay home and do school over Zoom? So you know what? When the teacher's in the classroom or on the Zoom with you, you know how it's easier for kids to pay attention and do what they're supposed to be doing and follow the rules when the teacher's watching them? And then sometimes the teacher will have to step away for something and then someone will make a silly noise or someone will say, make a comment. And then, you know, somebody's bossing somebody else around and then things just get really out of hand. And we've forgotten all about what we're supposed to be doing. Nobody's paying attention to the lesson. And then kids are just bickering and being bossy. Well, that's the same kind of thing that was happening in Corinth. When Paul left, people fell back into their old habits. They started caring more about themselves than they did about following Jesus. They were just saying, I'm right, what you're doing is wrong, and I don't care about you anymore. You should just do what I'm doing because I know what's best. But that's not really true. They don't really know what's best, but who does? That's right, Jesus knows what's best, and following his way is always the best idea. So, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are actually letters that Paul wrote to Corinth after he had left, after he heard how things had gotten. And he was reminding the people in Corinth about their love of Jesus, about fo how following him is the best way, about how fighting isn't the answer, and how about being right or being in charge or making yourself great isn't really what we should be doing. So, instead of following what the world says, let's follow what Jesus says, because his way is the best. And you know what? You can invite the world to follow him with us. He loves you. He wants you to follow him, because his ways are the best ways for you and for everyone. I love you guys, I miss you, and I hope to see you again soon. So good morning again, Green Tree. It's good to uh, be back together uh, worshiping. Uh, this morning, we are starting a sermon series entitled A New Reality. So I want to prep this uh, by, by giving you a couple of, of pictures of a new reality. For those of you that are married, uh, whether it's been for a little bit of time or a long time, uh, you probably can remember going from uh, single to dating to, boy, this might be the one to proposing or being proposed to, accepting a proposal, preparing for a wedding and that day arriving, and it's glorious and it's wonderful. And now you enter into a new reality. Uh, and that new reality in many ways is, is glorious and wonderful, but it's also a new reality that presents challenges to you. And, uh, and, and obstacles uh, and opportunities. Uh, you think about growing as a couple and getting to know one another. You see that picture of the screen on uh, the husband's under the sink there and the wife is handing him uh, the tools that are needed to complete the job. And you think of, of a growing partnership. And that's new. You didn't used to have that kind of commitment from a, another human being. You think of as, as life goes on, if the Lord blesses you with children, now there's a, a whole new reality there in becoming parents uh, and navigating those waters and, and how do you uh, raise a young one or young ones. And then the other picture is a, is a family holiday gathering, which we all know can be absolutely crazy. Uh, we get together with extended family, and now we have our own family union, and now we're kind of comparing ourselves to each other, and what did mom and dad do, and what did, what did they do that we don't want to do, and, and uh, cousins are over there doing this, and uh, the, an argument breaks out at the end of the table, and you have to negotiate all of that, because now you're in a bigger family. It's a new family. It's a new reality. Uh, on maybe a, a more difficult note, you think of the new reality in which we live uh, in the days of COVID. 
uh, and you think of the things that we do to be careful. I have right here uh, in the pulpit my, my mask that I'll put on uh, as soon as the service is over, as soon as I begin to interact with folks again. And that's the, the new reality in which we live, the social distancing. Uh, I would dare say a year ago in September, uh, probably most of us wouldn't have even known uh, what social distancing is, but we live in a new reality. Uh, children that are even able to be in school right now are, are in school with masks or with plexiglass uh, around their desks. That's the new reality. And even as we think about the holidays uh, that are not too far off and we think about uh, you know, Santa Claus and, and having to be careful to, to not get too close, uh, every aspect of our lives uh, is a new reality. This fall, we're going to be studying uh, in the book of 1 Corinthians. And I said it very carefully. We're going to be studying in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're not going to be doing a verse-by-verse study of 1 Corinthians. And the reason we're entitling this series A New Reality is because the, the letter that was written to the church in Corinth was written to them, and we'll get into this in just a couple minutes, very recently after it was formed as a new church. Uh, to a congregation of new believers that were just trying to begin to find the pathway of faith. And what did that look like for them collectively? And what did that new reality look like for them as individuals? And so as we walk together as Green Tree Community Church, uh, I thought it would be wise this fall to think about our relationship with one another, uh, our relationship with our larger community in terms of this new reality in which we find ourselves as the redeemed people of God, saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a change from the life that we lived before. Uh, our sermon, in a sense, this morning is this. The new reality we live in as believers in Jesus must replace our selfish, me-first worldview or me-first uh, approach to life. Uh, apart from Christ, I tend to live for myself. I can do kind things to other people, but apart from the redeeming love of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit, I tend to live in the world's reality, which says, take care of yourself, take care of yours, get more, live for this life. But now that we've been redeemed by Jesus, there's a new reality, and that takes some getting used to. Uh, there are probably times when you as a Christian say, boy, I feel like I should be further along than I am right now. Or I haven't quite mastered uh, that particular aspect of following Jesus. There's a transformation that is ongoing as we live in the new reality of followers in Jesus. So we, I think that 1 Corinthians uh, is going to be helpful for us in that matter. Normally I read a scripture and then we walk through that scripture verse by verse, but today... Because it's an introductory sermon, I'm going to cover kind of the theme and, and where we're headed uh, in the study. I'm going to be reading a wide variety of verses out of 1 Corinthians. So uh, instead of reading just one passage throughout the sermon this morning, uh, you'll be hearing me read. And on the screen, you'll see the, uh, you'll see the references to those verses. Uh, but in that, uh, in that vein, instead of reading the scripture and then praying, I'm just going to go ahead and pray for us right now. And then we'll jump in. So let's pray together for just a moment. Father, we thank you for the new realities that is ours in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you give us new life. Uh, the Apostle Paul calls it a new and living hope. Lord, we are so grateful that you would redeem sinful, broken, devious, ungrateful, mean-spirited folks like us. Father, we thank you that you are kind to sinners who don't deserve your kindness. And Father, we pray that as we study this new reality, as we look uh, at your word in the, in the letter that Paul wrote, the first letter that Paul wrote to the new Christians in Corinth, that you would give us your insight. Father, we, we're not so very different from these folks. I think we're going to find over the next couple of months, we're going to find ourselves in the pages of first. Corinthians, facing some very similar challenges. And so as we look at this, Father, we pray that we would not uh, be uh, beat up with these verses, but that we would be encouraged, that we would be corrected where we need to be corrected, that we would be challenged where we need to be challenged. But Lord, that we would see these words to us, just as Paul wrote them to the Corinthians, you give them to us today. 
is the opportunity to grow more and more in this new reality of believers in Jesus. So, Father, we pray that you would teach us by the power of your Spirit and by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I confess my sin to you. I pray that, uh, that any errors on my part, any, any sin on my part, would not hamper or hinder the teaching of your word this day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me introduce you to uh, my friends, the Corinthians. Uh, if you have one of those maps in the back of your Bible that shows Paul's missionary journeys, uh, you'll find that Paul stopped in Corinth somewhere around 48 AD. It was during his second missionary journey. Now, Corinth, uh, if you look at all the cities in the ancient world and you look at Western civilization in the 21st century and the personality uh, collectively that we have as a culture in our day and age, I would argue that Corinth comes the closest to reflecting uh, the attitude of life in the United States today. Here's why. Uh, Corinth was a, a key trading town. It was a, it was a port town, so much like New Orleans uh, might be, or, uh, or Baltimore, Maryland might be, uh, New York Harbor, uh, any place where there's a lot of trade going on, uh, that would be Corinth. It was a key a uh, transfer place for goods and services to come and go. It was completely cosmopolitan. The wealth in Corinth was vast. There was a lot of money to be made in Corinth, and not just new money, uh, but old money as well. There, there was an, in, an incredible amount of influence that didn't just find itself inside of Corinth, but spreading out to the entire Roman world commerce international population, uh, perhaps uh, only second to Athens in the ancient world was there a celebration of and a love for sport and competition. There were a myriad of self-made success stories and the appetite for any and all pleasure was unbounded. Two different historians speaking about Corinth, one says this, intellectually alert, materially prosperous, and morally corrupt. The second uh, historian speaks of Corinth this way, the true Corinthian was a man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desire. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3 says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, the Corinthians needed a lot of sanctification. And so I, I kind of want to uh, kind of leadingly ask you, does that remind you of anybody? <laughs> I, I think it would probably remind you, or at least it reminds me of, of our culture today. I think that's a pretty good definition uh, for the United States. And so here's Paul coming from Athens across land in Greece and dropping down into Corinth. And, and Paul comes to Corinth in a way that is different than, than most other passages. Paul says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, when he's writing to the Corinthians, he says, I came to you uh, in weakness and in fear and in, in much trembling. Uh, Paul was, was nervous as he entered Corinth because it was, it, it was a place that uh, exuded confidence and exuded everything that was secular. And it was an intimidating place. And yet God gives Paul a fruitful ministry in Corinth. Uh, Paul stays in Corinth for 18 months. Uh, so he doesn't just kind of hit town and preach for a couple weeks and head out. Uh, God allows him to lay a foundation of, of a godly Christian community among a group of folks that are brand new believers. Uh, Paul didn't meet any existing Christians when he got to Corinth. So everybody in Corinth who was a Christian when Paul left heard the gospel from his, from his message, from his heart. And so they're standing in a new uh, reality. 1 Corinthians chapter um, 1, verses 4 through 9 says this, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. 
so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. These folks are believers. They're passionate about following Jesus. They are intense. They are energetic. And because they are young, they are immature. They have all the energy in the world, and and they're not quite sure what to do with it. And what they end up doing with it, at times, can be harmful to one another. So they need to learn to live in this new reality. Paul says as much, and again, I want to remind you, I'm going to be skipping around to a whole bunch of different verses in 1 Corinthians. But in chapter 3, Paul says, Brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh or people of the world, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? What is Paul saying there? He says, you're immature. You're just beginning to grow. Uh, there are challenges uh, to this new reality in which you stand, and you're just getting started. Does it remind us of, of anybody? I, I think, again, it reminds us, not uh, at Green Tree, we have new believers, uh, we have older believers, but all of us collectively face these types of, of growth challenges and growth opportunities in Christ. So what are uh, the challenges that we're going to look at over the fall when it comes to living in this new reality? What are some of the things that we're going to learn from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that will help us think about ourselves individually and Green Tree Community Church collectively in our own day and age as we kind of navigate our own spiritual uh, you know, viruses of our life, so to speak? How will we do that? Well, there are four observations that I want to speak to this morning. Again, and it is an overview, and we'll be coming back to each one of these and and unpacking them a bit. We're going to talk a little bit about relational division, about about the fact that relationally they were banging heads with each other in a lot of different ways. Uh, We're going to look at their immaturity when it came to understanding uh, sexual purity and, and how God's redemption speaks into our sexual expression. Thirdly, uh, they had a, a keen lack of understanding about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And because of that, uh, there was a lot of hurt that was happening within that congregation. And, and then lastly, uh, there was uh, an ignorance of the resurrection and why that was important to understand and believe. So we're going to look at those four briefly this morning. And then what we'll do Sunday by Sundays, we'll come back and we'll begin to look at those more in depth. So briefly this morning, uh, the first observation is relationally divided. That was one of the challenges in Corinth. And there were several reasons for uh, these divisions. The first was misplaced loyalties. Paul says, it's reported to me by Cleo's people that there are is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean by this is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. And then he asks rhetorical question, is is Christ divided? And the answer is, of course not. Later on, Paul says, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. What was happening in Corinth is that they were letting themselves be divided by different personalities within the church, within the larger church as a whole, uh, or certainly as the, the church of Corinth. And instead of being focused on belonging to Jesus, and that being their highest loyalty, they just kind of allowed cliques and little small groups to form up, and they began, as every human group will do, they began to bump heads with one another. And Paul says in the new reality of faith, You ought not be relationally divided. That's a sign of immaturity. But there was also not just some misplaced loyalties, but there was also some overt infighting within this church. If you go to chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, it says this, 
When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? In other words, they're dragging each other into court. They're, they're suing one another over issues that are happening, not between Christians and unbelievers, but between Christians within the church. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? The world is to be judged by saints. Uh, are you incompetent to try a trivial case? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such a case, why do you lay them before uh, those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can't it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers, but brothers go to law again, go to the court against brothers and before unbelievers. There was not just a little bit of disagreement. There were, there were deep divides that, that folks ended up in court. I had the opportunity just a, a couple of weeks ago to visit uh, with a couple of my grandchildren, and it's really interesting uh, to watch them most of the day get along. And, and most of the time have a great time with one another and uh, older sister and younger brother play together really well. But occasionally <laughs> they would get sideways with each other and they would try to work it out between each other, which could mean one of them knocking the other one down and taking the toy away. And that's how they felt the, the dispute might be settled. But pretty quick, they took their case to court and court was either mom or dad. Uh, and if and if mom or dad wasn't around, court might have become papa. But papa was smart enough to say, "Let's go find mom or dad. Let's go find the real the real judge and jury here." But these little guys could make a compelling case as to why they were so mistreated by the others. And Paul is saying, "There's a tone among you that is a tone that is easily offended and keeps a record of wrongs to the extent." that you're actually going to court against one another, racially, uh, excuse me, relationally divided. There was also a sense of in, insensitivity to one another. In uh, chapter 8, verses 6 through 9, Paul's calling them out about really not caring for one another the way they should. For us, there's one God, the Father, from whom all things uh, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food, which is uh, really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled or is harmed. It's hurt deeply. Food that is not commended to us by God uh, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There is an insensitivity on the part of older Christians. Uh, in this case, there were folks who uh, they lived in a town where meat was sacrificed to idols. And after it was sacrificed, it was resold at a lower price. And so if you're a bargain hunter, you bought the meat that was sacrificed to idol because it was maybe a couple, couple bucks left and you, you could stretch your budget that way. Young believers were saying, I don't think you should do that. That was sacrificed to an idol. That was false worship. That, that hurts uh, that food. And instead of listening and instead of saying, well, let's talk about that and let me help you with that. And by the way, if my behavior hurts your heart, I'll stop that behavior. There was an insensitivity on the part of the Corinthians, they didn't care for one another well. A church in one I served in years and years ago, uh, I was just starting out my preaching career. I'd served in the church before uh, in other roles, but I, I was just starting out my career as a preacher. And every Sunday, there was a gentleman who would come up to me after church. This is back in the, in the days when the pastor stood out in the, in, the, in the narthex in the back and shook hands with everybody as they walked out. And there was a gentleman who came by every Sunday, and he would give me a number. And the number might be two, or the number might be six, or the number might be eight. And then he would say, that's how many sentences you ended in a preposition. In other words, he was trying to offer what he thought was care for me and help me be a better speaker. Now, I'm pretty, uh, I'm pretty careful about that mistake going forward. But let me tell you, that didn't help me one bit. All that did was hurt me. It hurt my heart. It discouraged me. It made me, it made me think, is that 
what you're listening for in the Word of God is how the preacher does it right or, or does it wrong. And it was really a frustrating, harmful experience for me. My guess is that a lot of us who have been Christians a while can look back and see where an older believer maybe didn't care for us well, maybe was insensitive to us. And Paul points that out and says, when that happens, it doesn't, that doesn't bring people together. I didn't feel a warmth towards that man. I felt a, an angst in my heart towards him. And Paul says, when we're insensitive with one another, that divides us relationally. And the, and the last part under this first observation is the, the Corinthians were practicing a very disorderly and careless worship. Uh, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because you come together, when you come together, is not for better, but for worse. So Paul's saying, boy, COVID would be great for you, Corinthians. Keeping you apart would actually be better for you. Boy, this is, this is trouble. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's a divisions among you, and I believe it in part. There must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So he's talking about communion. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. <laughs> what I do, uh, what do uh, I commend you for these? Do you not have houses to eat and to drink? Or you just, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Paul says your, your worship is, is harmful to others. He goes on to say there's a better way. You ought to be careful about your worship and later on in chapter 14 he says therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues outsiders or unbelievers enter will they not say that you're out of your minds but if all prophesy in other words if all teach a lesson a, a brief lesson so that's what we're gonna start doing everybody in church come with your with your five minute lesson but if but if prophecy an unbeliever or an outsider enters he's convicted by all he's called to account by all the secrets of the heart, his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn and a lesson and a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. In other words, don't be careless. Don't be disorderly. Don't be selfish in your worship. So, I, and I'm spending the most time of all four points, so don't panic. Each point isn't going to be, you know, 20 minutes long. But this division of them relationally was incredibly hurtful. These fractions and, and some of the self-righteousness and some of the carelessness is a big emphasis in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And I would say in the American church today, and, and I would say Green Tree isn't any exception to that, we must be so careful to give our loyalty to Christ and to submit ourselves to Him. And so we'll be talking about that some in the weeks to come. What, it, what does it look like for a church to live in the new reality of relational godliness with one another? Secondly, uh, Paul noticed that there was a significant and serious problem with sexual immorality. Chapter 5, verses 1, th one through 3 he says this, it is actually reported that there is a sexual immorality among you and the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. We're going to come back to that in just a second. For a man has his father's wife. He's actually speaking uh, about a stepmother uh, incestuous relationship. And you are arrogant. In other words, they were boasting about it. They thought, hey, as Christians, we, you know, we're, we're free from sin and we can kind of live this out however we think best. Ought you rather not mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. Flee from sexual immorality, Paul goes on to say uh, in chapter 6. Flee sexual immorality. For every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Uh, I've, I've seen, I've been reminded recently of statistics that have been pretty constant uh, throughout the last 20 years or so, looking at the sexual mores, the sexual behaviors, the sexual attitudes in our culture. And, and the, uh, the sexual sin that is outside the church is only slightly less present 
inside the church. In other words, the same temptations are there in our lives. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean you won't face sexual temptations. It doesn't mean that you won't uh, sin sexually as a follower of Jesus. What those statistics tell us is that we're not taking those temptations as seriously as we are. That we're not allowing the new reality of being Christ in Christ to really uh, do that cleansing and healing work within us. Because sexual sin, sexual expression outside of marriage, in many ways, is just a, it's a sign of our brokenness. And I, and I don't want to say we're just victims and we're not responsible for our sin. We are, but in so many ways, uh, the ways in which we misuse our physical bodies is really, in many senses, a cry that says, I'm empty in some way. I'm missing something. And we are not uh, fostering and growing intentionally this new reality that we have in Christ. And when we don't do that, one of the outcomes uh, is the sexual immorality, the sexual sin. And so Paul says, uh, you guys are doing something that even the Corinthians find reprehensible. Now, the Corinthians would do pretty much anything and everything. They had a temple that sat on the hill at the top of Corinth that had over a thousand prostitutes in that temple that worked 24-7 around the clock. And Paul says, even those guys think y'all have kind of gone over the line. Wow, <laughs> that's pretty serious. But that's what has been taking place with these young Christians. And they're not seeing and they're not living in this new reality that is theirs in Christ to the extent that would be uh, life-giving to them. Third observation. Got four, we want to keep moving. There's a lack of understanding of spiritual gifts. And this lack of understanding was a lack of identifying the gifts. It was a lack of using the gifts. And it was a lack of understanding the motivation behind the gifts. So let's talk just for a minute about identifying them. Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, Now concerning spiritual gifts, uh, folks, I don't want you to be ignorant, uninformed. I want you to understand. You know that when you were pagans, you were led away to mute idols, however uh, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one's speaking in the Spirit of God. So this is how we introduce spiritual gifts. The Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord expect, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them in everyone. What Paul is saying is, I want to identify the truth of spiritual giftedness. You need to know that this is a very real thing. A spiritual gift and a talent are two different things. So we have folks up here on Sunday mornings that play the piano and sing, and, and, and we have folks that, that, that uh, when we get to get together, teach our children Sunday school. Uh, we, we have folks that are really good at that. We have folks that, that uh, can serve in you know, many different ways. A lot of those things are talents. But a spiritual gift is actually a manifestation of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So hospitality, generosity, wisdom, teaching, those are spiritual gifts. And Paul says, I want, you, I want to identify those. Don't be ignorant about these because if the Spirit is present, these are in your life and in my life. I want you to identify them. I had an economics professor in college. Um, I took a couple of economics classes, and they were tough classes. And my economics professor was named Hadley Mitchell, which is the perfect name for an economics professor. But I, rem I remember the first day of class, and, and Dr. Mitchell said, if I use a word you don't know, you don't understand, I want you to do two things. I want you to learn it, and I want you to remember it. And he said it in such a way, scared all of us, like, okay, we're... <laughs> We're, we're going to take good notes here, and we're going to listen carefully. And he started using words I didn't understand. Boy, the first couple of weeks, I'm writing them down and looking them up in the dictionary. But he wanted to, us to be able to identify. He wanted us to be able to understand. And so he called us to pay careful attention. And that's Paul says as believers, we need to pay careful attention to spiritual gifts, but not just understanding them, but also using them. In chapter 12, starting in verse 24, Paul calls us uh, to to be active, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. 
If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. So you, you're a hand, you're an arm, you're a knee, you're an eye, you're an ear, but you're there to serve others. So we don't just want to identify spiritual gifts, we want to actually put them into practice. We want to use them. That's part of the new reality of who we are in Christ. But we also, and maybe most importantly in spiritual gifts, not only identify and use, but understand the motivation behind them. Understand why God has given us these gifts in the first place. So for that, we go just one chapter over to 1 Corinthians 13, which is known as the, the love chapter in the Bible. And these are maybe verses with which you're familiar. I may speak with the tongues of men and angels, but if I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm an irritating sound. If I have a prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I may have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says the reason for these gifts is because of God's love. And God's love is to be received by us, but it's to be shared with others. So have you ever wondered why you have the gifts you have? You ever wonder why you have the gift of generosity? You ever wonder why you have the gift of wisdom? You ever wonder why you have the gift of leadership or perhaps teaching? It's not so that you can boast about those things. It's not so that you can be arrogant about those things. It's so that you can serve the body of Christ because God loved the body so much that he gave his son for us. And if God loves the church in that manner, the new reality of our lives is that we're to follow him in that love. I don't use my gifts out of arrogance. I don't use my gifts out of a out of, uh, sense of duty. Uh, we don't use our gifts in a selfish way, but rather we understand that what stands behind all of these gifts, whatever they may be, is the love of God that he's given with us to share with one another. And fourthly, I know we're going a little bit long here. Fourthly, the, one of the challenges in, the, in the, the new church at Corinth was an ignorance of the resurrection. Somehow, some way, they had been with Paul for 18 months, and, and I don't know how, but they missed it. And so Paul reminds them early in the chapter, he kind of reminds them of God's intention, why the resurrection is going to be important. And in chapter 1, he says this, Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. All of this is wrapped up in our new reality in Jesus Christ. And so we can't, therefore, brothers and sisters, be ignorant or to be lacking in our understanding of the resurrection, because to do so would be to limit our relationship with God to this world only and this life only. And God has created us for an everlasting relationship with him that if we're believers has already begun today, but will carry on into eternity. And so it's important we understand two things then about this resurrection, that not only God's intention, but understand the resurrection of Jesus and understand how that pertains to our resurrection. So in chapter 15, Paul says, beginning in verse 12, I know I'm giving you a lot of verses today, and you might have to go back and kind of pick them through, but uh, we're going to cover all this in detail, so just hang with me for a couple more minutes. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. In other words, you've just wasted the last 30-plus minutes of your life, and so have I, right? Our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testify about God that he raised Christ from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. If Christ is whom he uh, has not raised, uh, if that's not true, then the dead are not raised. And, and all of this is, is hopeless. All of this is for naught. Paul says, goes on to say, we above all men are to be pitied if there is no resurrection. But the resurrection doesn't begin with you and with me. It begins with the Lord Jesus. But the purpose of raising the Lord Jesus is not just to validate his death and his resurrection as a means for your salvation and mine, but it's also to seal 
our, re- our salvation, to make our resurrection f- sure. And so later on in, in chapter 15, he goes on to talk about the reality of our resurrection. Okay? For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, who gives us new life. How? In the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul so wants these new believers to understand the new reality, which includes the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because when you understand the outcome, it allows you to persevere. It allows you to be stronger, and it allows you to share that hope with the people around you. There there are brothers and sisters in Christ around you and me every day, and sometimes we're in this boat where we're discouraged where we're hurting, where we're sad, where we're broken, and have a brother and sister in Christ share that burden with us and love us well and also remind us, you know what, this isn't all there is. There's a new morning coming when all this is going to be, all this brokenness is going to be gone and new life, this, this reality that we're tasting will be a reality in full. And so Paul wants us to be reminded of the intended outcome so that we'll persevere. Uh, real quickly, I remember in college when I played soccer, in August when we had to report to camp, we would have four practices a day. We'd have a, a, a workout in the morning, early in the morning, a lot of running, a lot of exercise, then two uh, workouts during the day that was a lot of drills and then a big scrimmage at night, and it was, it was miserably exhausting. But I remember every day our coach would say, we're not doing this for today, we're doing this for November. And what he meant was we're getting ourselves ready to get someplace. We've got a goal in mind, and we're going there. And that allowed us to persevere. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians, don't neglect. Don't be ignorant. Don't, don't, don't set aside uh, the truth of the resurrection. Apply that to your life. So this is a, kind of a, a, t- this is a motley crew, right? Uh, relationally divided. Uh, some sexual immorality, lack of understanding of spiritual gifts and the use of those, uh, and an ignorance of the resurrection, they are, uh, as one of my friends like to say, they're a hot mess. <laughs> they're, they're just kind of stumbling all over themselves. But again, I read 1 Corinthians, uh, 